This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. This is David Rutledge with you once again. And a conversation this week about the pros and cons of coming into existence. When you look at the amount of pain that's in the world, not just in places where people are suffering the very dramatic effects of war and disease and climate-related disaster, but even in our very ordinary lives where all of us will sooner or later experience hardship and loss and ultimately our own deaths, when you stack all of this up, How does it make you feel about existence as a moral phenomenon? Do you decide that life's still pretty good and that the positives outweigh the negatives? Or do you wonder if maybe it might be better, certainly morally preferable, if you, and for that matter everyone, had never been born at all? Well, my guest this week is of the latter persuasion. His name is David Benatar. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Cape Town in South Africa, and he's one of the world's leading proponents of anti-natalist philosophy, which in a nutshell holds that to bring a sentient being into a world such as our own is to do that sentient being a grave moral injury. In 2006, David Benatar published a book titled Better Never to Have Been, The Harm of Coming into Existence. And when you read it, it's not hard to see why it's been such a popular book in spite of its rather confronting subject matter. As we're about to hear, antinatalism of the kind that David Benatar espouses has a fascinating and compelling moral logic behind it. And rather than just being a species of bleak misanthropy, it's animated by a certain spirit of compassion. Well, all of that said, I should mention that this conversation covers topics such as suicide that some listeners might find confronting. David Benatar joins me now. David, welcome to the program. Thank you. Nice to be with you. I want to begin with the the biological drive to procreate, which gives rise to what you describe as the predicament of existence, because we can marshal any number of ethical or philosophical arguments against antinatalism, but arguably none of those arguments stands as a a refutation in quite the same way as that biological drive to reproduce does. So what, what do you make of it? Well, I wouldn't treat the biological drive as a refutation. It might be a defeater in some other kind of psychological way. So it may be that no matter what the arguments are for antinatalism, the biological drive will override them. But I don't take that to be a refutation. I also don't fact take the fact that there are biological drives to be an indication that we should be procreating any more than any other number of biological drives that there might be. So aggression might be one of the drives that we have that doesn't mean to say that uh, you allow it to proceed unchecked. There is a familiar moral narrative, isn't there, though, that that attends the whole business of procreation and, and the raising of families. And it has to do with procreation as a kind of altruistic act. The, the parents give the gift of life to their child. They, they make all sorts of sacrifices in order to give that child an upbringing. And the, ideally, the happy child grows up to be a well-adjusted adult who in turn contributes to the greater good. Is that a narrative that you completely reject? Is there some truth to it, do you think? There's some, but not a part that undermines antinatalism. So I do think it's deeply confused to suggest that in procreating, one's giving a gift to the being that's brought into existence. I think that's just a complete confusion and, uh, and, and a morally odious one. But once a child exists, then I think that you can do a better or a worse job raising it. And I do think that many parents do make sacrifices in order to raise their children. And I think that's exactly what they should do. That's the, the least they can do, given that they've brought them into existence. 
I'm a little skeptical of that optimistic picture that most people turn out to be well-adjusted and net good contributors to the world. I think that the human species does a great deal of damage. It's very hard to avoid doing all of that damage. Uh, some people may do more good than bad, but I suspect that's going to be a small minority of humanity. Okay, so how would you describe then the antinatalist position? Can you give me a, a thumbnail sketch of the main arguments? Well, I think there's a difference between sketching the position and then arguing for it. But broadly, the view is that it is wrong to bring sentient beings into existence. And the justification for that is that there's nothing to be gained by the person or the being that is brought into existence, but there's lots to be lost by being brought into existence. And so we shouldn't do it. The one image that I've given in one context is to imagine a scenario in which you have this magic wand. And if you go around tapping stones with this wand, it'll turn the inert stone into a sentient being that will be able to derive pleasures, but will also be liable to all the hardships that sentience comes with. And I think we'd be hard-pressed to say that you're justified in going around tapping stones and turning them into sentient beings. I think this is not a bad analogy for procreation. We're bringing into existence beings that really don't need to be brought into existence, and they'll pay a very heavy price if we do. So would you say then that childbearing is an immoral act in and of itself? Depends exactly what you mean by childbearing. Uh, so, Well, deciding to procreate, let's say. Yes, I think that is immoral. I recognise that most people don't agree with that. And therefore, given how widespread procreation is, many people are going to be resistant to the idea. So they're going to take exception to the suggestion that what they're doing is immoral. But I would want to draw a distinction between whether the action is morally permissible or not and the extent to which we should blame people for engaging in procreation. Those two things don't have to go together. And I think that given how widespread the practice is, given how little exposure people have to antinatalist ideas, it may be that we shouldn't blame them in a way that is commensurate to the wrongfulness of the action. I'd like to continue here with the argument that you present in um, Better Never to Have Been, which relies on what you see as an asymmetry between pleasure and pain, which is that pain is bad and pleasure is good, but the absence of pain is good, while the absence of pleasure is not necessarily bad. Tell me if I, if I haven't got that right, but how do you arrive at an, at an antinatalist conclusion from this? Well, you've got the asymmetry partially right. I think the part where you went wrong is with the absence of pleasures or goods more generally. What I say is that those are not bad unless there is somebody who is deprived of them. Okay, yeah. So if you or I are deprived of pleasures or of some other goods, then that absence is bad because we're here to suffer the absence, to suffer that deprivation. But if the reason why there is no benefit or no pleasure is because there's no being to have that, then I'm saying in those scenarios, it's not bad. So what happens as a result of this asymmetry is that there's no net advantage to coming into, an existence, into existence, but there is actually a net harm to coming into existence. And what that does is create a presumption against procreation. Now, it's only a presumption at this point because if the harms are being brought into existence were modest harms, limited harms, then it might well be that the interests of other people, such as parents and grandparents and the broader community in procreation, might outweigh these harms. But in fact, I think that the harms of coming into existence are very serious ones, 
And so it becomes impermissible, I think, to be treating these potential people that you could create as means towards the ends of others, given just how profound the harms are. Isn't there an asymmetry in the way that you set this out, though, in that you present pain as something that has its own sort of ontological integrity, if you like, whereas pleasure seems somehow relative to people's experience of it. So if you say that an absence of pleasure is neither good nor bad, as long as there's nobody in existence to be denied that pleasure, why can't we say the same thing about pain, that that an absence of pain is also neither good nor bad, as long as there is nobody in existence to be relieved of that pain? But I think the important thing to point out is that I'm making an axiological claim and not a logical one. So yes, logically, you could just say there's symmetry, but that is going to be completely at odds with very fundamental and important moral judgments that we make. So think, for example, of a scenario in which you know that if you bring a being into existence, it's going to suffer unspeakably. Let's just take a scenario here where it's an unusual amount by human standards of pain and suffering. Well, a lot of people think that you've now got a reason to avoid bringing that being into existence. I think that what explains that is the axiological asymmetry that I was referring to. Think about the flip side, though. Let's imagine that you could produce a child that, by human standards, would lead a a good life, a relatively good life. Well, we don't normally think that that's now providing you with a moral reason to have the child. Maybe people will think there's a permission to have the child. Nobody thinks that there's a moral reason to have the child there. And in fact, uh, you, you go so far as to say we don't think that there's a duty. So there would be a duty to avoid bringing the suffering being into existence, but no duty to bring the so-called happy being into existence. Now, this is just one of the judgments that we make that is explained by the axiological asymmetry. Obviously, I'm oversimplifying here, and I'm not sure we have time in the constraints of a, of a short interview to explore the full details. But the point is that there are a whole range of moral judgments that we make, which seem pretty foundational, which are very neatly explained in a unifying way by the axiological asymmetry that I've defended. But when you, you bring up the example there of, of, of choosing or not choosing to have a child that you know is going to be born into extreme suffering, but what you're describing there is a life that will be marked by what I would consider to be extraordinary pain. The antinatalist view doesn't seem to distinguish between the extraordinary pain suffered by an unfortunate few and, and the ordinary pain suffered by just anyone who's alive. And, and again, I don't see why ordinary pain is more egregious in its painfulness than ordinary pleasure is in its delightfulness? First of all, I would dispute the claim that antinatalists can't distinguish between lives of extraordinary suffering and lives of ordinary suffering. I think what the antinatalists would say is that if you're going to procreate and bring into existence a child that will have a life of extraordinary suffering, that is even worse than producing a child under ordinary circumstances. So there can be gradations of the wrongfulness of procreation, And there can also be gradations of blame attached to that. So I would dispute that point. But the second point I want to make is that I'm harnessing a judgment that ordinary people make. And I'm saying that the best explanation for that is the underlying axiological asymmetry. And that when you then spell out the logical implications of that axiological asymmetry, you reach the antinatalist conclusion. So that's the methodology of the argument. Obviously, most people are not antinatalists, but I'm trying to show that the commitments that they do have 
also commit them to antinatalism, even though they don't realise that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm interested in considering what might happen if everyone decided to adopt the antinatalist view. We we would presumably see shrinking populations, shrinking uh, tax bases for national economies, e- eventually a reasonably lengthy period during which life would be quite terrible for the last surviving members of the species. No goods, no services, no healthcare, this sort of thing. How do you square that in moral terms? Is this just one of those evils that would have to take place in order for a, a greater evil to be avoided? I do consider this scenario in the book better never to have been, because it's an obvious implication if everybody were to be adopting my view. Of course, it's merely a theoretical possibility. We need to know that in practice, people are not going to stop procreating in large numbers as a result of antinatalism. There may be a limited number of people who would do that. But let's nonetheless consider the theoretical scenario. And I do have to face up to, and I acknowledge that there would be a large amount of suffering associated with that final generation. But the question is what the alternative is. So there will one day be a final generation. Humanity will not go on forever any more than any other species will go on forever. We don't quite know the form that that extinction will take. We don't know whether it'll be relatively sudden. We don't know whether it'll be slow. If it is relatively slow, then it's going to be no different from the scenario that you've described for the final generation, except that it would come much later than if everybody voluntarily abstained from procreation now. So there'd be all the intervening generations of suffering. And then it's pretty clear that it would be much better to end it earlier rather than to end it later if there will be a final generation that suffers in that prolonged way. The other possibility, of course, is that it all ends rather quickly, but then you're going to have a large number of people dying prematurely and probably not entirely painlessly. There'll probably be a lot of suffering involved just in that. And again, you have to consider the intervening generations that there would be between now and then. And my question is, are we justified in engaging in a procreational Ponzi scheme whereby we keep pushing out this fate for humanity to a future generation, a future generation, and then there's some future generation that pays the price instead of us? It's not clear to me that we're justified in doing that. This is The Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge, and my guest this week is David Benatar, a philosopher from the University of Cape Town in South Africa and the author of Better Never to Have Been, The Harm of Coming into Existence. If I understand you correctly, you hold not only the view that the world is full of suffering, which I think many of us can appreciate and agree with, but that even happy people or people who consider themselves happy are actually worse off than they might think. Tell me about that. What is it about the life of a a notionally happy person that justifies an antinatalist perspective? Well, remember, a happy person already exists. And so we're not speaking about decisions about whether their lives should continue. My view is those decisions lie in the hands of those people. It's not to say we can't evaluate those decisions in some way, but uh, they should have authority if they're competent adults to decide about whether their lives continue or not. When we're speaking about procreation, we're speaking about creating beings that are not there yet. So what we have to be mindful of is the possibility of some wishful thinking on the part of already existing people and then using that in order to justify the creation of new people. And we do have quite good evidence, psychological evidence, that 
the average person, not every last person, but the average person is liable to some psychological traits that cause them to overestimate the quality of their life. Perhaps the chief one of these is what's known sometimes as the Pollyanna principle or an optimism bias, uh, that people tend to see the good more than the bad. And this is why, this is one of the reasons why I think that people's self-assessments of the quality of their lives are unreliable. That's a different question, as I've said before, from what we do with that fact. So if you've got an unreliable assessment and you think that your life is going better than it actually is, I don't think that we should intervene and end your life against your, your wishes and over your protestations. But that's a different question from bringing new beings into existence. Uh, there the bar is at a different level. Yeah, I, I take your point that the antinatalist argument or, or set of arguments pertain primarily to this decision of, of whether or not to bring beings into existence. But there are still what seem to me to be inevitable conclusions that one needs to draw if, if one is going to be an antinatalist that suggest that life is terrible. I, I guess what I'm asking is, does it, does it follow or, or why doesn't it necessarily follow from the antinatalist position that, that we should be unhappy? Look, look, happiness is a relative matter. So I'm not opposed to existing people trying to make their lives and the lives of other people and other beings as good as they can be. Obviously, once you're here and once other beings are here, there are going to be moral imperatives to make those lives better rather than to make them worse or to leave them the way they are. So I'm not opposed to attempts to improve the quality of life for those people who already exist. What my worry is, is that if that involves a degree of optimism that spills over into creating new people, then you've moved from the terrain of alleviating to some extent the condition of existing people into perpetuating the human predicament by creating more people. And that's when you begin to do more harm than good. And so I think there are sort of degrees of happiness and, and different methods of approaching happiness such that we could be in favor of it in some ways, but not be in favor of the kind of exuberant optimism that leads people to think that if they create new people, that their lives on balance are going to be better than, than worse. So once we're here, you're saying we make the best of it. And, and so suicide, for example, is not a, a desirable solution to the problem of, of existence. I don't think so, because I think there, uh, there's a human predicament and the predicament is that life is bad, but death is often, but not always worse. So death is one of the things that's bad about being brought into existence. If you'd never been brought into existence, then you would never die. Uh, but once you're brought into existence, you're going to die. And dying, I think, is a very bad thing. Uh, not just dying, but being dead, uh, having your life terminated is a, is a bad thing. Uh, so I don't think that you're going to improve the human predicament by prematurely taking your own life. And in fact, taking your own life will in some ways cause lots of bad. First of all, it'll harm the people around you, including people who are very close to you. Those are deep wounds for the survivors to, uh, to endure. And also, insofar as you can generate any meaning in your life, it's usually, but not always the case, that you need to live longer in order to do it. That the earlier you end your life, the less meaning you can produce. Now, of course, these are modest amounts of meaning, but you're not improving your situation by foreclosing those opportunities. 
When you say that death is bad, I wonder what you make of the counter view that death is a state of non-being with no more moral weight attached to it than the state of non-being that precedes one's birth. So, so I should be no more horrified by the prospect of my own future non-existence than I should be horrified by the thought that I didn't exist in 1960. If we see it in that way, death becomes a very neutral fact of life. Why do you view it as intrinsically bad? Let me say at the outset that I can't offer a knockdown argument against that Epicurean view that you've described. I think that's why that argument has survived for the generations that it has. But I do think that if we look at the balance of evidence and the balance of arguments, we should not embrace the Epicurean argument over the view that, uh, that I've espoused. Again, there's a long argument for that, and it's hard to capture that in the short time that we have available. But it would deeply upset our quite basic judgments about things like murder, about death itself. People spend a lot of energy trying to avoid death. There's something wrong with murder, and I think it's not just that it sows fear in the minds of the people who survive murders. So these sorts of ideas seem to be quite a basic, quite foundational, and are not explained. In fact, are contradicted by the Epicurean view. Another point is that we may be wrong. Let's imagine we go with the Epicurean view and the Epicurean view is mistaken. And now we are killing off people painlessly whenever we can. We're killing ourselves off. Uh, if we're wrong about those things, there are very serious costs attached to that. Whereas let's imagine that the antinatalist is mistaken and they don't bring new people into existence. Well, the costs attached to not bringing new people into existence are rather modest in exchange. Nobody has been harmed by not having been brought into existence. Whereas if the Epicurean is wrong, there'll be lots of people who would have been harmed by having been killed prematurely. So again, it's not a knockdown argument against the Epicurean, but I think when we stack up all the considerations, the balance of evidence suggests we should reject the Epicurean view. What about the notion that there is meaning to be found in suffering? And this is a tricky one because that intrinsic meaningfulness of suffering can often be, you know, it, it can stack up to sort of specious arguments against things like voluntary euthanasia. But then on the other hand, people are often inspired by stories of other people who have suffered. Someone like Nelson Mandela comes to mind and people sometimes come through their own bouts of suffering with a sense of meaning and a new depth of appreciation for life. And it seems to me that there needs to be a, a reckoning with this kind of experience that goes beyond just saying, well, yes, these people are wrong or they're experiencing some sort of false consciousness. I recognize that suffering and pain can have a benefit for existing people, but it doesn't follow from that that we ought to create beings who are going to suffer. So let's imagine you're here and you grow through the suffering. Well, then there's a benefit to you from the suffering. And that's good for you to have that benefit but the absence of that benefit would not have been bad if you had not existed in the first place. It, it seems to me that there's a useful distinction to be made between pain and suffering. And if we agree that the difference has to do with the presence of consciousness or the kind of consciousness that we have of that pain, would you also advocate the non-existence of non-human animals, indeed all sentient beings? I do indeed. I think that my arguments apply to non-human animals that are sentient as well. 
Uh, when I look at the natural world, independent of human beings, there's just a vast amount of suffering. I think about the billions of animals that are being eaten alive by other animals every minute. Uh, this is a, it's an horrific world in which we live. These horrors are often kept from us or we don't see them. They, they're hidden, they're obscure, but they're there. And I think it would be better if we lived on a planet, or not if we lived, if there were, if there were a planet in which there were no sentient beings. Mars is better than Earth. I'd like to maybe finish up here with the question about the extent to which antinatalism is tied to a misanthropic philosophy. The notion, for example, that human beings are, are a kind of virus, you know, the, the planet would be better off without us because we're destroying the environment, we keep on starting wars and so on. Are we just a bad lot, do you think? I do think we are. You're correct to distinguish two kinds of antinatalist argument. The one is a philanthropic argument and the other is a misanthropic argument. My book, Better Never to Have Been, was devoted to the philanthropic argument. And that, I think, is the most important argument for antinatalism. It's the most far-reaching in its conclusions and the extent of the antinatalist view that, that, it, that it defends. But there are also misanthropic arguments, which I think are not incompatible with the philanthropic ones. Perhaps I should just say something about the distinction between them. So philanthropic arguments for antinatalism are those that are rooted in the interests of the being that is brought into existence. The idea is that you're going to be harming somebody by bringing them into existence, and therefore you ought not to do it. Misanthropic arguments are concerned with the interests of other beings that will be negatively affected by your bringing this new being into existence. And so arguments, for example, about climate change, about the impact of the babies that you have on climate change, those are misanthropic arguments, or at least in part they are. One thing you might be worried about is what world will this child inhabit and what will be the quality of its life? That's the philanthropic component. But insofar as you're worried about producing a new carbon emitter, a new consumer, a new being that's going to impact on, on climate change, then you are involved in a, in a misanthropic argument. And I do think that that has a certain force, a certain power to it. I just don't think that it produces the kind of categorical opposition to procreation that the philanthropic argument does. Instead, what it does is calls for a reduction in procreation and a more selective kind of procreation. Right. So you're what you might call a compassionate antinatalist. You're concerned with the amount of suffering that exists in the world and you would like to relieve that suffering and, and this is the way, the, the best way, the only way in which you can see to relieve it. Yes. Yes, there's a compassion even in the misanthropic argument because although you're concerned about the harm that the newly created being will do, you are concerned about the harm of other beings. And so this is not a nihilistic philosophy. Neither the misanthropic nor the philanthropic arguments are nihilistic. It's a common criticism of antinatalism to say this is a nihilistic view. That's not true. There may be some highly circumscribed context in which it's nihilist. In other words, you're nihilist about procreation. You don't think that there should be procreation. But the justification for this is deeply embedded in values that I think most people accept but don't recognize to where they lead. Well, it's a fascinating philosophical position and it's a very interesting work that you've been doing and I, um, I'm glad that you are in existence, David Benatar. It's, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Very kind of you. Thank you. I've enjoyed speaking with you. 
And David Benatar is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. He's the author of Better Never to Have Been, The Harm of Coming into Existence, and a number of other books that explore the philosophy of antinatalism. We'll put publication details on the Philosopher's Zone website. And if this program has raised concerns for you or for someone you know, you can contact Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 for advice and support 24 hours a day. Thanks so much for your company this week. I'm David Rutledge. You can find me on Twitter at David P Zone, and I hope you can join me next time. Bye for now. <laughs>